coming to you from the Motor City. Hello, and welcome to Detroit's Daily Docket. On today's episode, the doctors will be taking you through the basics of an autopsy. What is an autopsy? Who can perform an autopsy? What are the different types of autopsies? What standards are set by the National Association of Medical Examiners? These answers and more, coming up next. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. I'm Dr. Lachman Sung and I'm sitting in studio today with Dr. Webb. Hello. And thank you for joining us for episode three of Detroit's Daily Docket. Today's episode, we're going to focus specifically on the autopsy. It's a pretty broad topic and we have a lot to cover. And because we perform autopsies every day, sometimes we take it for granted that family members, lawyers, and other people that we talk to may not be so familiar with all of the different processes of the autopsy. So today, we're going to shed some light on this subject by answering questions such as, what is an autopsy? What are the different types of autopsies? What are some performance standards for conducting one? And what are some of the requests that can be made, things the autopsy can tell you, things it can't? Let's start off with the autopsy in general. Basically, what is an autopsy? And in all seriousness, an autopsy is only performed on someone that has died. It's called a postmortem examination, and the key is postmortem. It's after death. In the forensic setting, two of the main goals are to determine the cause of death and the manner of death. Now, the cause of death is essentially why a person dies. A person can die from a heart attack, cancer, stroke, gunshot wounds, stab wounds. There's essentially an infinite number of causes. In the medical examiner community, there is some debate as to whether or not a person can die of more than one cause or multiple causes or just strictly one cause of death. Some examiners say that you can only die of a single cause of death, while others say no. In fact, you can die of multiple causes. I'll give you an example. If you have a person that has a incised wound or a cut to the neck where it severs one of the carotid arteries, it's quite clear they have a very severe injury and that cause of death would be an incised wound to the neck. Take another person. They come in with a gunshot wound to the chest where it goes to the lungs. Once again, very severe injury and the cause of death there would be gunshot wound to the chest. So there's no debate over those two cases. But let's change that and combine the two. Let's say you have one person. They have both the cut or incised wound to the neck and the gunshot wound to the chest. So independently, either one of those could have caused a death. If you are one of the individuals who stand fast to only one cause of death, you necessarily have to choose one, whichever one you think is more fatal, and then put the other as contributing to death. And that's pretty difficult because, once again, each of the injuries independently are fatal. Now, can I uh, ask you a question, Dr. Sun? Of course. What if, in that situation, two different people had... Well, let's say one person, person A, had inflicted the uh, stab wound to the neck and person B had shot the person in the chest. Um, what happens in the courtroom? Well, that's the problem. If, once again, you're an individual who believes that there can only be one cause of death, if you say it's a gunshot wound to the chest that caused death, potentially the individual that made the incised wound or cut to the neck, their charges may be lessened. 
Now, I'm under the belief that people can have multiple causes. So I would put both the gunshot wound to the chest and the incised wound to the neck as the cause of death. The determination of who did what is not my job. It's up to the attorneys and the investigators and the police. So that decreases my potential for any type of conflicts in judgment of what wound is more fatal than the other. And what you're saying essentially is that both independently. Exactly. Independently. Yes. So that's cause. Now, the manner of death is something that Dr. Reyes covered in episode one. But as a recap, there are five manners of death for the most part. There are homicide, suicide, accident, indeterminate, and the most common one, natural. Depending on your jurisdiction, you might have the sixth manner of therapeutic complications. But unlike causes, which you can have many, many different types, manners, you only have five. There is actually one other one that I think we forgot to mention. In the state of Oregon, they actually have a manner that's called, quote-unquote, other, and they use that for physician-assisted suicides. Here in Michigan, it's not something that we have, so I'm right. definitely not familiar with it. Yeah, this is just something that. that I recently came across. Hmm. So getting back to autopsies, there are different types of examinations that you can undergo or a body can undergo when they come into a medical examiner's office. And each office has their own protocols for determining which type of examination is appropriate. The three that are most common will be your full autopsy, then limited autopsies, and then the last is an inspection or external examination only. Definitely the inspection or external examination only is the least invasive of the three. With an inspection, there's only the examination of the outside of the body. And there might be some x-rays taken, but for the most part, there's no incisions or cuts made into the body. Here with the examination, we can also include review of medical records, look at the scene, and also other circumstances surrounding the individual's death. Take, for example, a 90-year-old man. He comes in with a quadruple bypass, history of high blood pressure. With that type of history, there is significant medical information that performing the autopsy would not be necessary. So we would inspect that body instead of performing a full autopsy. Now, Dr. Sung, could you talk about why would a case like that, a 90-year-old with like significant cardiovascular disease, why would that ever fall into the jurisdiction of the medical examiner in the first place and not, for instance, be released from the scene of the death? Right. There are several examples of why someone like that might be brought into our office. It could be that when the individual was discovered deceased, there was no next of kin that could be reached to have that body be released to. So we can then contact or try to contact the family next of kin. Another reason might be someone could be at the location, but they may not be an adult who can make those medical decisions. Or there are times in which the body could be decomposed and it requires our further examination to make sure that there's no injuries on that body. And I believe there's something about the um, if the primary care physician is unavailable or unwilling to sign the death certificate, at that point, the medical examiner can also take custody of the body as well. Right, right. Now, those are just some examples of why we would do an inspection and not perform the autopsy. The next type is the partial or limited autopsy. Here, there's an internal examination that is limited to one part of the body. A common example of that is if there's a suicidal shooting to the head where the bullet is still inside the head. 
So we would reflect the scalp, cut the skull, remove the brain, and recover the bullet. And that would be the extent of the examination in that case. For both the external and limited autopsies, we may still recover samples for toxicology. If we escalate the the examination. examination, we move on to the full autopsy. For the full autopsy, here's where we remove all of the organs, including the brain from the body, and we look at each organ individually, both on the surface, and we make detailed incisions into each organ to look for disease processes or, or other injuries. Also, during the full autopsy, we can collect the full complement of toxicology specimens to send out to our labs. If you break down these three types of examinations, by far the most common in southeastern Michigan is going to be your full autopsy. We perform, I would say, about three-quarters of our cases are full autopsies, and then the rest are the limited or the external exams only. Now, the limited exams, I would attest that we do probably the fewest of of those types of examinations because the situations in which those become necessary are very limited. Um, I think... Like, for instance, uh, let's use our the example of our 90-year-old with the significant cardiovascular disease. Let's say he's found at the bottom of some stairs, and there is suspicion that he may have fallen or he may have hit his head. So in that situation, I might do just a uh, examination of the head and the brain to see if there was any uh, bleeding from, or evidence that he might have hit his head somewhere. And if there isn't, then I would be fairly confident to say that it was most likely a cardiovascular event that caused death. Uh, what are you, what are the kind of situations where you would do a partial exam? Right. I agree with you in that, in that situation. Uh, sometimes you are already provided significant past medical information. So your examination might be limited to confirm uh, suspicion. That just as you mentioned, individual found at the bottom of a stair, uh, bottom of stairs. Uh, limited autopsy might also be for cases in which there are significant objections, and we'll get to that in a little bit later. But if there is a specific medical disease process, such as a neurologic disease, in which a person might be involved in a research study where their expected death is pretty high, however, whatever research project they are involved in, they have a need to further examine that brain, mm-hmm. particularly. So we might do a limited autopsy where we recover just the brain and then submit it for that research purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have firsthand uh, knowledge of a case um, when I was in training where we did a limited autopsy and recovered only a single adrenal gland. So we had to make a the most limited incision possible and retrieve only the adrenal gland uh, this individual had uh, a rare malignancy, and the physicians were studying. So that was the entire um, extent of the autopsy, was retrieval of that gland. So, yeah, truly uh, a limited exam in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of that brings up the differences between forensic autopsies and hospital autopsies, which, once again, you'll have to mm-hmm. wait till we get to that topic a little bit later. But we will cover some of the more intricate details of why hospital autopsies may have limitations. And I saw that you mentioned uh, when you were talking about your full autopsy, you, um, you didn't use the word complete autopsy. 
And I know that I kind of cringe a little bit when somebody says, oh, we're going to do a complete autopsy because uh, the word complete um, really requires the context of the circumstances in which the individual arrives at the medical examiner's office. If you were to look at every autopsy technique and every test that could be performed in a, on a post-mortem exam in an exhaustive manner, that would be a, a ridiculous examination. And so I think use of the word complete is a little bit of a misnomer and that a full autopsy or, you know, a complete autopsy is really within the expertise of the individual who is doing that exam. Quite right. Right. We always approach each case individually. Uh, there are some general practices that we perform. For example, we do remove all the organs. We look at each of the major organs. However, depending on the case, there might be additional things we have to do. For example... If during the examination of an individual involved in a motor vehicle collision, if we find no significant injuries on our typical standard examination of the organs, we might have to do a further, more extensive examination of the musculature of the neck, of the blood vessels in the back of the neck. So that is not something that we do on a regular basis, but once again, on a case-by-case. -case. Right. One situation that I am thinking about is um, when we have a a child death or an infant death, the type of exam that we provide for that case is significantly different than the exam that we do for an adult that we may suspect has had a natural death. Um, and so each situation dictates a very specific set of autopsy techniques and examinations like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So those are the three main types of examinations. Now, something I do want to emphasize is even if we're doing a full autopsy, we're, we are making incisions in such a way that it does not disfigure the body. We make a Y incision, and if a person is going to be viewed in a funeral, that Y incision can be hidden by the funeral home directors. So an autopsy does not prevent a viewing at a funeral. There are some special cases where there may be a very limited amount of soft tissue left on the body, such as in a mummified or a severely skeletonized and or decomposed case. For these, the major portion of the postmortem will be an exam that is performed by a forensic anthropologist. Here, our anthropologist really painstakingly removes all of the remaining desiccated tissue from the bones and then looks at the bones for any evidence of inflicted trauma or anything that might shed light to the cause of death. The anthropologist is actually incredibly skilled. Uh, when they reassemble all of the uh, bony elements left in the remains, they can measure various different bones and get estimates for the stature of the decedent, the gender of the decedent, as well as giving you a high probability for the ethnic origin or what their bony structure most resembles. And in the examination of all the bones, obviously, they'll be able to tell you if there was any perimortem or premortem injuries like fractures, healing fractures, if there were stab wounds that grazed the surface of the bone and left score marks onto the surface, as well as larger defects such as one that would be caused by a gunshot wound or blunt force trauma. So those are some of the basic types of, of exams we performed. Of course, there are some specific standards that we have to follow in performing all of these. That is absolutely correct. The, the governing body or the, um, the accrediting body 
in the United States is the National Association of Medical Examiners. They work in conjunction with uh, many local jurisdictions, and uh, they have a set of standards, which we refer to as the Forensic Autopsy Performance Standards, which every office tries to abide by. And these create the framework which define the fundamental services which are rendered by the medical examiner. These are considered the minimum of what constitutes a competent autopsy. And in the courtroom, many times, whether it's a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney, will often refer to these standards in order to evaluate if a proper examination was completed and if the examiner is going to be deemed an expert and their exam going to be deemed reliable. So the name, which is the abbreviation for the National Association of Medical Examiners, recognizes that, that certain standards may be in conflict with other federal, state, or local laws, and that deviation from those performance standards may occur from time to time, but that the exam that is performed is within the best judgment of the professional who's doing that exam. The name association also has many position papers on controversial issues, such as fatal abuse of head injuries uh, to infants and young children. Um, so a position paper is meant as a gold standard or a document that provides guidance. Um, it doesn't replace the autopsy standards, but it enhances them, and it gives you uh, detailed techniques and procedures and other recommendations when performing very specific investigations. Position papers are not meant as a substitute for professional judgment, and they are not meant to be used to criticize an autopsy that meets the minimum standards as dictated by the forensic autopsy performance standards. So every jurisdiction has laws and statutes that define the role of the coroner and the medical examiner and the cases that must be reported and investigated. So these are reported within the forensic autopsy performance standards. And I'm going to go over a few of them. And I want to make sure that we make the distinction between which cases are investigated and which cases then, after investigation, are to be autopsied. Because that is two distinctly different lists. And I think sometimes that's difficult to understand. But, for instance, the rules state that a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner shall investigate all... And then I'm going to give you a, a few, of these, few of these points. Number one, deaths due to violence. And I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Deaths that are known to be or suspected of being non-natural deaths, any death that is unexpected in a person who was apparently in good health, any death that is unexpected in an infant or a child, any death occurring under unusual or suspicious circumstances, deaths of persons in custody, that, that is pretty much uh, across the board. Regardless of if it's a natural death or suspected unnatural death or unexpected death, typically all deaths within law enforcement custody are going to be investigated. Deaths known or, or suspected to be caused by diseases constituting a threat to public health. So something that we're dealing with today and something that's very salient is the coronavirus. So any death right now that is going to be attributed to coronavirus is going to receive a full examination. And the final one on the list is deaths of persons that are not under the care of a physician. This list constitutes which 
circumstances should be investigated by the medical examiner or would fall under the custody of the medical examiner, where the list in which cases should be autopsied or, or receive a forensic autopsy is perhaps a little more specific. So, number one, a death that is known or suspected to have been caused by apparent criminal violence. Uh, number two, death that is unexpected or unexplained in an infant or child. Death that is associated with any police action. A death that is apparently non-natural and in custody of a local, state, or federal institution. Death that is due to an acute workplace injury. A death caused by apparent electrocution. A death that is an apparent intoxication by alcohol, drugs, or poison unless a significant interval of time has passed and the medical findings and absence of trauma are well documented. I'm going to pause here for a second. What do you think about that one, Dr. Sung? I agree. But, of course, that agreement is dependent on if significant and sufficient information is readily available to the medical examiner who is uh, in charge of that case. For example, if we receive someone who has been hospitalized due to initial admission because of drugs, but that medical information or records don't reach us in time, it might be most prudent to complete the autopsy and then, after the fact, review those medical records. But... Once again, if those records are available and it's well-documented, then I have no disagreement with not performing an autopsy on those cases. And I bring this, or I give this pause because there is quite a bit of debate about this point right now because of the limited amount of resources and this increasing number of drug overdose deaths, many jurisdictions simply do not have the resources to perform all these autopsies. So... What they are having to do is in cases of suspected overdose, where evidence is potentially overwhelming, the individual might have drug paraphernalia or syringes or, you know, there is probably a, there's sufficient evidence to make that suspicion uh, very strong. Only toxicology may be drawn and that full autopsy not performed. Yeah, I can see the valid arguments for that, particularly, as you mentioned, the lack of resources for performing autopsies on all those cases. But there has to be an understanding that there is the distinct potential that a case that is seemingly due to drug overdose may in fact not be. So there's going to be that subset there. Right. And, and we see it all the time, uh, especially in our demographic in Michigan. We have a lot of elderly drug users, which makes it very difficult to tell. There, there isn't that classic drug user um, milieu. Caricature. Right, 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 right. Many times we see people in their 70s, even, even early 80s, that have significant cardiovascular disease, significant um, lung disease, and you may think 70, 80% of the time that that's a natural death. And very frequency, frequently we find that these individuals have a drug intoxication. So the next one, it says a death that is caused by unwitnessed or suspected drowning, a death of an unidentified uh, body um, where autopsy may aid in the identification. Can you talk about how an autopsy could aid in identification, Dr. Sun? 
There's many different ways that it could help. If you start on just the outside of the body or the external examination, there might be very distinctive marks on that body, particularly tattoos. Also, if there is a uh, very distinctive scar or dirt, very distinctive, let's say, body piercing or body modification, that might help. Now, internally, if an individual has implants from, let's say, orthopedic procedures, a, a rod or a hip or something of that nature, very frequently those implants or prosthetics have serial numbers. Now, it's not always immediately easy to match a serial number to an individual, but at least that's some additional information that might be, able, might be helpful. Um, next one is uh, anybody that is skeletonized, anybody that is charred, and the final one is the deceased is involved in a motor vehicle incident and an autopsy is necessary to document injuries and or to determine the cause of death. All of these are under the judgment of the medical examiner or the coroner, depending on your jurisdiction. And depending on the policies of that office, some may not perform full autopsies on individuals involved in motor vehicle collisions, for example, if there is significant external injury, while other offices might perform the complete autopsy or the full autopsy. So it just depends on where that death occurred. Right. Now, sometimes there may be various objections to us performing the autopsy, and there are objections based on many different factors. In your experience here, what have you been confronted with? So... I'm going to go ahead and talk about a couple of the religious objections. And I don't think we should just categorize it as religious objections. I think we should just say personal objections to the medical examiner or autopsy physician performing the autopsy. This is very common. I think we get maybe a handful every month. Would you agree, Dr. Sung? Yes, I think so. Um, I think that every family reacts to the autopsy in a personal way. And it has to do with their own experiences, their own beliefs, and their own spirituality regarding death and the afterlife and what the autopsy means in terms of the effect it has on the individual and their religion or their belief structure. Generally, there are at least five states, uh, California, Maryland, New Jersey, New York, and Ohio, that have statutes uh, regarding Uh, religious objections to autopsies. These give the next of kin the right to prevent an autopsy of the remains in most circumstances by signing a certificate declaring that the autopsy is contrary to their religious beliefs. A person that's completing these forms typically does not need to state what those religious beliefs specifically are, but they just need to say that, that it does violate their beliefs. Now, I can say this with utmost confidence, and I believe that most offices and most autopsy physicians and medical examiners are very cognizant of this issue, specifically the stress that the autopsy might place on the family um, who does not wish to have an autopsy performed. And we, for sure, try to work hand-in-hand with the family and um, their support systems to try to come to an understanding about what our point of view is, and if we believe an autopsy is necessary or that we would recommend an autopsy, and trying to understand their situation and trying to understand how to come to a common ground. Give them as much information as possible so that later, if they decide to pursue a case in court or later, if they have issues with closure, 
that they had all the uh, information when it was critical time to decide whether to go ahead with the autopsy or not. Have you had any situations where you had to speak with family regarding this? Oh, for sure. It's a thread that's very common in medicine. It's what we call informed consent. We want to provide the family members all of the information for them to be able to make a decision that is, in fact, informed. So it could be the case where the family just simply does not want their loved one, quote-unquote, cut into or cut up. And I I won't lie to you, sure, we do make incisions and we do make cuts, but it's not in a fashion that would, once again, disfigure a person. However, we have to convey to the family members why it is that we find it most prudent to perform that autopsy. Is there something that we're looking for via autopsy that isn't necessarily immediately apparent just looking on the external surface of the body? But yes, there have been many times in which I've had to speak personally with family members to convey that information. Other things that we have to tell them is that if we do not perform an examination, whether it's limited or a full autopsy, that might have financial repercussions in the future or might have repercussions in a legal sense in the future if a suit or a case is brought forward. In those cases, it might be very helpful to have all of the internal findings presented. It could be a, f- a function of a medical disease that is resulting in death versus injury that results in death. But yes, there have been many times in which I've had to speak personally with family members to convey that information. Other things that we have to tell them is that if we do not perform an examination, whether it's limited or a full autopsy, that might have financial repercussions in the future or might have repercussions in a legal sense if a suit or a case is brought forward. In those cases, it might be very helpful to have all of the internal findings presented. So it's not that I try to convince a family that we should do the autopsy, but it's just presenting all the information so that the office and the family members are at an agreement and there's no bitter feelings or hard feelings between the two institutions or between between us. Right. And this is very important to understand that the, the medical examiner really wants to work with the families and that one of the key components to performing our duties is to help families get that closure that is necessary so that they can move on from the death of their loved one. And I don't think that individuals should see the medical examiner as somebody that's working opposed to their belief system. So coming to a mutual understanding is typically the easiest avenue. But there are situations in which it's difficult to come to a mutual understanding. And we as medical examiners have to do an autopsy in spite of an objection. Right. Now, sometimes if there is an objection, there is also the possibility of not performing the autopsy. But on the death certificate, we have to indicate that we actually don't know what the cause is. And in our opinions, we frankly state that due to it could be a religious objection or whatever objection there is, that a full autopsy was not performed. And as long as the family is cognizant of that, that is an option that we can pursue. And one case that comes to mind is in the situation where infants have passed. When an infant has um, expired and there is any suspicion of foul play, religious objections or personal objections to autopsy, I mean, will be heard, but uh, we have a duty to find if there was any uh, suspicious circumstances around the death of a child. And often those autopsies will go ahead for legal reasons. It may be hard uh, on the families, and and I, I can completely understand it. 
We just talked about cases where requests are made to not perform an autopsy. However, the opposite is also true where families may actually specifically request that an autopsy be performed. This can be sometimes difficult. Now, as neutral parties, the medical examiner's office is under no obligation to honor that request if it conflicts with how the case should be routinely processed. But, of course, there's no absolutes for this. It's something that is up to the medical examiner and the families to, once again, come to an agreeable conclusion, too. Tangentially related to the interactions with the family and the next of kin, there are times when we need to do a more thorough examination of an organ or of a specific body part that would help us to determine the cause of death. Many times that more thorough look can't be done on the same day that the autopsy is performed. If that happens, we would have to retain that specimen. Now, offices don't need to ask permission from family members to retain them. However, many offices do have policies in place to help notify the families that specimens are going to be retained, and it also gives them instructions on how those specimens can be returned to them if they so desire. Right, and, and this is goes hand-in-hand hand with respecting the community's religious beliefs, the necessity of burial of all of the parts of the body if the next of kin decides that that's what they want to do. Uh, Specific cases include deaths of children. Typically, when an infant, a newborn, a young child passes, the eyes and the brain are examined at a later date and more thoroughly. One other key point is that if there is a suspicion that a specific finding on the body might be important at a later time, that piece of tissue may be retained. And to my mind comes if there are signs of uh, possible strangulation or if strangulation was suspected and yet no signs of strangulation were found, it may be very important to show the negative findings. And so the hyoid bone might be retained. I know that I've heard in the past where, say, a second autopsy was performed and there might be alarm from the next of kin or the media that a certain piece of tissue was not available for the second autopsy. And there isn't great understanding about, let's say, why is this individual's hyoid bone not available to be examined by this second pathologist that's doing a second autopsy? And in fact, the explanation may be uh, quite simple and that those tissues are typically retained by the physician that did the primary autopsy and they're held until that case goes to trial and that case becomes closed and doesn't need to be revisited again. So retention of tissues is a key point in the examination of the body and it's something that I think families should be aware of. Because you're mentioning it now, this Uh, notion of a second autopsy, I think would be a good time to introduce the topic of private autopsies and how they're different from a forensic autopsy. Now, forensic autopsies are at no cost to the family, and I'm not necessarily trying to bring money into this topic, but a private autopsy is done at a family's request, and there would necessarily be a cost involved with that. They can be performed after a forensic autopsy has been performed or an autopsy in the hospital setting. So, Having one autopsy done by a medical examiner does not preclude a private autopsy or a second autopsy being performed. They can be performed on also individuals that have been inspected by the medical examiner or cases that were released to the family. Most medical legal offices do have policies that restrict their own medical examiners from performing private autopsies within their own jurisdiction, and that will avoid any conflict of interest there. 
if a family does want a private autopsy, it would be on their own to do an internet search or look and speak with other individuals who might have had a second autopsy. Right, and, and this is um, this prevents, for instance, uh, if somebody wanted to say, now I'm not going to do a forensic autopsy on your loved one, but you can pay me $5,000 and I will do a private autopsy. Right. So these rules are created so that there is no conflict. If you're within the jurisdiction of a medical examiner, that a duty of that medical examiner is to perform an autopsy when necessary. They're not going to essentially self-refer and create a private business out of that uh, expertise. Right. right. As a recommendation to anybody, you always want to check the credentials of the pathologist that you're going to hire. Make sure they're licensed. Make sure that they're licensed to practice in the state in which that death occurred. So those are all very important things. There are cases where the next of kin or a family is considering litigation. There is a misconception that you absolutely need a private autopsy. That's not necessarily true. A forensic or a hospital autopsy can suffice in the process of litigation. Now, there are times when a second autopsy comes to a different conclusion than the first one. And in those situations, there may not necessarily be a satisfactory resolution to the discrepancies. I think a very prominent case in which multiple autopsies were performed is the case of Michael Brown. Michael Brown was an 18-year-old male who was shot by a police officer on August 9, 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri. There were a total of three separate autopsies performed, and the first was done by the St. Louis Medical Examiner's Office because Ferguson happens to be in St. Louis County, which makes that death in their jurisdiction. The second was performed by a private forensic pathologist 12 days after the shooting and was under the request of the family. There was a third autopsy that was done by the Armed Forces Medical Services at the request of the Department of Justice. Now, I'm going to discuss the specifics of gunshot wounds in Episode 7, but for now, all three of the autopsy reports were consistent with there being the gunshot wounds on essentially eight different locations on the body, head, chest, right side of the body, and right hand. Also, there were no shots fired to the back, and only one of the wounds had close-range fire, and that was the one to the right hand. Now, the three reports did note abrasions on the right side of the face and neck that were consistent with a terminal fall. What a terminal fall is, essentially, where as the body is in the process of passing or dying and they fall to the ground, certain parts of their body strike the ground and create abrasions on the body. Mm -hmm. They're most noted on the prominent parts of the body, such as the brow, the tip of the nose, elbows, so on and so forth. So, Surrounding the orbit. Right, right. Right. Now, that's not to say that all three of the autopsies were consistent. The examinations performed by the St. Louis Medical Examiner and the Department of Justice showed some abrasions on the knuckles, which the private autopsy did not. And there's supposition that the abrasions on the knuckles might have been due to contact with the officer during the incident. Now, also during the private autopsy, there was no access to the clothes or the x-rays. And this issue points to the potential completeness and integrity of the private autopsy that was done on Michael Brown's body. Now, I'm not saying that private autopsies are inferior or are done poorly. It's just that the family also has to do some homework. They have to, once again, check on the credentials of the 
person performing the autopsy, make sure that they are physicians and make sure that they're licensed and able to provide you with a unbiased report mm-hmm. and accounting of the findings. Um, and as it has been brought to light, there are perhaps some charlatans out there performing autopsies that are beyond their training or expertise. And not every autopsy is going to be of the same quality. And the autopsy is really as good as the expert who is performing it. Yeah, you can have multiple autopsies performed on a body, but it does not mean that one is better than the other or that one is of the same quality or expertise as another. Mm -hmm. With that, you have to put some thought into who can actually perform an autopsy. We've, of course, talked about medical examiners and coroners if they are, in fact, pathologists. Pathologists in the hospital can definitely perform an autopsy. It's what is known as a hospital autopsy. And with hospital autopsies, one thing that is distinctly different than a forensic autopsy is that in order for a hospital autopsy to occur, there must be consent. So a family member or next or appropriate next of kin must consent to either a full autopsy or a limited portion of the autopsy. There is necessarily a piece of paper that indicates that, yes, an autopsy can be performed. And the goals of a hospital autopsy are distinctly different than an autopsy that is performed for forensic reasons. Like Dr. Sung mentioned earlier, two of the main important guiding principles of doing a forensic exam is the determination of a cause and manner of death. In a hospital autopsy, that isn't the case. 99 out of 100 times, maybe 999 out of 1,000 times, a hospital autopsy is performed where they already know the reason why a patient has passed. But what they are seeking is to characterize the disease process within the body of the decedent. For example, if this person had cancer, what organs had metastatic lesions? And maybe they want to take samples of that lesion and they want to do genetic analysis and contribute to science or use that information for the care and health of the remaining family, where the cause of death or the manner of death is not necessarily in question. Where the cause and manner come into question, that hospital autopsy can actually be converted to a forensic autopsy, and the decedent may be transferred into the custody of a medical examiner. Right. Other individuals that can perform autopsies, can be residents or fellows who are currently undergoing forensic pathology training, as long as, of course, there is proper supervision by a pathologist. And one thing that we also do is train anatomic pathologist assistants. And part of their training and part of their accreditation is to learn the autopsy process. So once again, under direct supervision, we do uh, train pathologist assistants to perform autopsies. I think an excellent example of how all of the principles that we've covered today really culminate in a case is that of Carrie Fisher. Uh, Without a doubt, unless you've been jokingly living under a rock, you know who Carrie Fisher is. Her most notable claim to fame is playing Princess Leia in the Star Wars franchise. And she was a passenger on a flight from London to Los Angeles, and she was seated next to her assistant. During the flight, she had multiple apneic episodes. And towards the end of the flight, there was an episode of vomiting that was noted, and she became unresponsive. Now, apnea is something that happens 
like you may have heard sleep apnea, for instance. It's uh, when you are sleeping, something obstructs your airway and there are multiple different things that could occur, but your airway becomes obstructed and then you momentarily stop breathing. Eventually, you become so hypoxic or your oxygen levels get low enough where it kind of jolts you awake and then you kind of gasp for air and you get come back to uh, I don't know, life. So... Um, she had these multiple apneic episodes, but from my understanding, I think she may have had sleep apnea or that this was not uncommon for her to have these apneic episodes. Right, you're right. She had uh, previously a diagnosis of having sleep apnea. She also had bipolar disorder. And when she became unresponsive on a the plane, they, of course, initiated CPR and they continued until the plane landed. Unfortunately, she was comatose when she was brought to and arrived at the hospital. Now, at the hospital, they did run a urine drug screen at the time of admission, and it was positive for cocaine, methadone, alcohol, and opiates. During the resuscitation process, some ribs were fractured, which is actually pretty common because they need to do chest compressions, and it's quite a stressful situation if you are undergoing resuscitation. Right. So the key point of doing CPR is to artificially pump the heart. So in order to create that artificial pumping, you have to be very forceful in pressing on the ribs, and many times you get uh, rib fractures from forceful resuscitation. We see it all the time. Right. So that's not unusual and not to be confused with inflicted trauma onto uh, Carrie Fisher's body. Uh, they also saw some aspiration pneumonia, which corresponds to the apneic episodes that mm -hmm. she was likely having. And all of that made her very, very critically ill. She went into cardiac arrest and was pronounced dead four days after the flight. The family objected to an autopsy, and three days after... Carrie Fisher died, they did perform an external examination of the body, and they also did obtain some toxicology samples, mainly the samples from the bile or the liquid inside the gallbladder, liver, and the vitreous humor or the fluid inside the eye, and they tested that via toxicology. Now, do you have any problem with the uh, not performing an autopsy in this situation, Dr. Sun? I think... Because she was hospitalized for quite a while, I, I would not necessarily have an objection. Here, what is known is that they did recover some sample at the time of admission. I want to emphasize that specifically because if a person has a very long hospital stay, the status of their blood at the time of their death does not necessarily reflect their status when they first entered the hospital. Right, especially if they've received significant intravenous products. Right. Right. Or blood transfusions or whatnot. Right. Mm -hmm. So, no, at this point, I would not object to not performing the autopsy. The toxicology testing was performed on all three of those specimens, and they also performed it on the blood that they took at the time of admission. Because of the time lapse between the initial admission to the hospital and when Carrie Fisher died, the hospital blood only showed positivity for benzoyloacanine, which is a breakdown product of cocaine. But the sample that was obtained during initial admission was not sufficient to perform a complete panel to analyze if parent cocaine was present. Everything else screened positive but could not be confirmed. And once again, that's a reflection of the quantity of material that they had. The bile was positive for morphine. The liver was positive for diphenhydramine, fluoxetine, meperidine, and methadone. The 
fluid in the eye was positive for morphine and 6-monocetomorphine. Once again, from our previous toxicology discussions, 6-monocetomorphine is the direct breakdown product of heroin. Right. So necessarily, we know that heroin was introduced into her system because it's really chemically improbable, nearly impossible to form 6-monoacetylmorphine in the body uh, without parent heroin present. Oh, the cause of death for Carrie Fisher was determined to be sleep apnea and other undetermined factors with arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease and drug use listed as contributory factors. The manner could not be determined. So with that information, what's your opinion, Dr. Webb? Um, I would disagree. My interpretation of these findings would have been different. I think that I agree with all of the factors that were listed on the death certificate, but I would have changed the orders around a little bit. So I want to go back and look at the toxicology report here and talk about how I interpret these toxicology reports. First of all, when you see a urine drug screen from a hospital, when you're looking at what is present in the urine, that's what has been metabolized. Okay, that's not necessarily what is circulating within the bloodstream. Okay, Metabolized being broken down Broken already. down, and it's already being excreted from the body. So cocaine, which in reality what is being screened is benzoylecanine within the urine, um, methadone, alcohol, and you know general opiates, those are things that were already being excreted from her body. So it is also high probability that some of those compounds are still present within circulation, but you can't just infer just because if there is, let's say, positive cocaine within the urine that the cause of death was due to cocaine. Uh, many, many times we see individuals whose urine is positive for cocaine metabolites but don't necessarily have any parent cocaine within their bloodstream because anything after four or five half-lives that product is already been metabolized almost down to zero, and it just is remnant within the urine and being excreted. Before you go on, just as a point of explanation, a half-life is essentially the time it takes for the drug's concentration in the body to be cut in half. So Dr. Webb is mentioning four or five half-lives before that drug is completely, well, not completely, but eliminated from the body to a degree that the test cannot analyze. Right. So, for instance, let's say drug A has a half-life of four hours, and I took 10 units. In four hours, I would only have five. Right. If you were to do the math, around five half-lives, you're down to, you know, very little of that compound remaining. So, if we look at the hospital blood, and we look at what they were able to find within the post-mortem toxicology analysis... They found benzoylecanine within the bloodstream. The key thing about benzoylecanine is that it's an inert compound. Um, because benzoylecanine is inert, if you don't find parent cocaine within the bloodstream, you cannot surmise that cocaine had a contributing factor within the cause of death. So I can understand why cocaine doesn't necessarily find its way on the death certificate because parent cocaine was not identified. Now, having said that, there are esterases within your blood. Uh, they're just these uh, almost like protein machines that just keep breaking stuff down, regardless of if you're alive or not. They can continue to metabolize certain parent drugs into the metabolite or inert forms after four days. So you can't really make a determination of um, if parent cocaine was really the cause of death. The other drugs that were found in the liver 
diphenhydramine, which is... Um, Common name is Benadryl. Benadryl. Uh, fluoxetine, which is an antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Meperidine, which uh, the common name is Demerol. It is, um, it's, it's for pain. Now, I don't assume to know if she had prescriptions for these medications or these were medications that she was taking uh, in a prescribed or like illicit manner. I, I don't know and I don't care to offer an opinion, offer an opinion regarding that. And then methadone. Um, and methadone uh, really gained popularity when heroin really became an issue and treatment for heroin was uh, just really flourishing. They found that methadone has uh, what's called a ceiling effect and it's more challenging to overdose on methadone. So they were using methadone as a substitute for opiate addictions and it is given out in a very controlled way. So when you typically see individuals that have methadone positivity, that is an indication that they have had drug dependencies in the past. People don't typically seek out illicit methadone. It doesn't give you the same highs as an illicit opioid, a fentanyl or a heroin would give you. So we move on to the vitreous humor. As you know, the vitreous humor is the fluid within the eye. And examination of the vitreous humor is very useful in the postmortem state because it's this compartmentalized fluid that is sequestered away from the normal circulation of the body. So it stays unaffected for a very long time. And within the vitreous humor of the eye, we find morphine and 6-monoacetylmorphine. And this is where I really draw the line. Because 6-monoacetylmorphine and morphine are present, and this test came four days after, to me, this indicates that parent heroin was used not long before death. Now, this is a particularly significant finding because I'm sure most of us will agree that illicit heroin would not be administered to a patient while hospitalized. So the only way in which she would have this in her system is if it was taken during her flight. Right. And for better or worse, it is pretty common knowledge that uh, Ms. Fisher had a drug history. She had significant drug dependencies throughout her life. She struggled with rehabilitation and relapses. So I don't think it is too far of a stretch to think that drugs played a, a more significant role in her ultimate death than her medical condition of sleep apnea. Although sleep apnea is significant and it does cause many deaths, the deaths are often more predictable than in this case. The typical sleep apnea-related death occurs in a very protracted fashion. Typically, the individuals that suffer most from sleep apnea and would be predicted to have the most fatal outcomes typically present a lot earlier than their demise. Mm-hmm. What, what is your experience with this? In order for you to make that diagnosis, there has to be the supporting information. And I agree with your assessment. So let me tell you this. 60-year-old Jane Doe coming off of a plane, not a celebrity, comes to you and toxicology shows 6-monoacetylmorphine, and there's no other significant medical findings, what are you most likely to call that? And follow-up question, what are the pressures of doing a celebrity autopsy? For your first question, my cause of death would be heroin toxicity and the manner their accident. And I think what you're hinting at is something that's incredibly uh, important 
and I'm not throwing aspersions on anyone in this profession, but there must necessarily be a separation and independence and conflict-free diagnosis. When you don't have independent entities, the pressures can be augmented, particularly when it involves celebrity deaths. You never know what kind of influence, and I'm not uh, suggesting that influence was made, but whether it be actual or perceived influences, there is always that specter of that when it comes to a celebrity death or a quote-unquote famous death. Right. And to be clear, we didn't perform a secondary autopsy on Miss Carrie Fisher. No. Um, We did not look at the tissues. We did not look at any of the photos. But based on the information that we were able to collect and based on the details that we were able to see, this is the interpretation that we would have. In no way are we trying to criticize somebody else's autopsy, but given these lists of circumstances which we've covered just briefly, this is the interpretation that we would have. Just saying honestly that maybe we haven't seen all of the details that led them to make a different supposition. We hope you've enjoyed this brief look into the world of the autopsy and the many facets involved in deciding if an autopsy is needed or not. It's an extremely valuable and powerful tool that we use to gain insight into the people that come into our office. When performing an autopsy, we have a unique opportunity to have an intimate view of the inner workings of a body that no other physician has access to. We're happy that you came along with us on this journey through the autopsy and hope you join us again for episode four, where Dr. Lavity and I will talk about homicidal asphyxiation. And we'll also introduce you to our forensic photographers. Thank you again. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.